Good morning. Hope you're doing well. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Esther chapter 3. If you wake up tomorrow and decide to devote your life to faithfully obeying Jesus and making his glory known in your community and across the world, there are many, many people who want to kill you. There are many people around the world who want you dead. And if this sounds really far-fetched, if this sounds something that's totally distant from you or separate from you or the fact that you live in a, a free country somehow insulates you from this reality, you need to remember that we have brothers and sisters who live in this kind of situation every day. And just because geography or culture or religious liberty has stunted the desires of the enemy and those who follow him in this world, it is nonetheless true. There are plenty of people who want to kill the people of God. It has always been the case, ever since Cain and Abel, and it's true today. In the last two weeks, we've introduced the story of the book of Esther, a world empire has seemingly total power. People of God are scattered and weak, and through a series of coincidences, a Jewish orphan has now become queen in the Persian Empire. As we saw at the end of last week, Mordecai has just saved the king's life. And usually this act would have been handsomely rewarded with a, a station of influence or power, but as we'll see this morning, a reversal has taken place. Instead of Mordecai receiving this honor, someone else will. Today we get into the main content of the drama of Esther. And remember, this book is high drama. It's a story. And everything we've seen so far should be swirling in your head as we read of new developments throughout this narrative. Like a, like a great film or a great TV show that you have to watch really carefully, nothing is in this book by accident. And in light of the providence of God, our world is the same way. Everything matters. The people of God will be put in mortal danger. The real conflict of the story of Esther will be put right in front of us this morning. So let's read in Esther chapter 3, <clears throat> starting in verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then those king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh God in heaven, we are thankful for your word. Your word is clear to us. It's necessary for life and godliness. It's profitable as we study it because in your word, we see you. 
sometimes more clearly than others. But in this story, the story of Esther, God, we see you working behind the scenes to fulfill your promises and to preserve your people. So in the midst of the story that we find ourselves in today in Esther chapter 3, and as it relates to our own story as exiles in a land that is not our home, God, help us. Help us to see your gospel. Help us to see your glory. Help us to be changed by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we are seeing Haman's plot against the people of God. Haman's plot against the people of God. It's not just Mordecai he wants dead. It's the whole nation of Israel he wants dead. It's not just this one guy that disrespected him, but everything and everyone that he stands for. We're going to see this story play out in in kind of three, three scenes. The first scene that we just read about is that Haman is furiously offended. Haman is furiously offended. This chapter started differently than you might think if you were reading straight through the story. One would think that after saving the king's life, Mordecai would be uh, promoted as a faithful civil, civil servant into this position of power and influence, second in command only to the king. But instead, we read of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, an Agagite, rising to this rank. He is now second in command to the king. He has penultimate authority. He doesn't have ultimate authority. The only one who stands above him in the kingdom is the king himself. Now, why is it important that we know that Haman is an Agagite? Now, you read the Old Testament. You are probably uh, familiar, not necessarily with the different nations or the different people groups, but the fact that everyone belongs to a clan. Everyone belongs to a people group. So you have the Amalekites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Girgashites and the Ites and the Ites and the Ites, right? And so it's easy for us to just kind of skim along when we read something like this. But Haman being described as an Agagite is really important. If you have your Bible, find Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. Just flip back to the beginning of your Bibles to Exodus 17. God has delivered the people of Israel from slavery and bondage in Egypt, and they are moving from slavery into freedom from the Egyptian kingdom into the promised land. And we start to read in Exodus 17, starting in verse 8, that the Amalekites begin to have war with Israel. They're fighting against Israel. Moses holds his hands up while Joshua leads the soldiers into the fight. And as long as Moses' hands stay raised, Israel is prevailing. But when Moses' hands fall because he's tired, Amalekites start to prevail. So Aaron and Hur, the people who are with Moses, hold his hands up until the war is over, until the battle is won. Then we read, starting in verse 14 of Exodus 17, after the Amalekites were defeated with the sword, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, we learn in Deuteronomy 25, you don't have to turn there, uh, that the reason why God wants to destroy the Amalekites is because they did not fear him. 
They dishonored him in some way, and they were devoted to destruction. Now flip ahead a couple more pages to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Joshua judges Ruth, 1 Samuel 15. I promise this is going to make sense. Why is Haman an Agagite, and why is that so important? So find 1 Samuel 15, starting in verse 22. There is now a king in Israel, and his name is Saul. Saul is the son of Kish. If you remember, in Esther chapter 2, we learned that Mordecai was a descendant of Kish. And Saul is now king. So Samuel, the prophet, the one who speaks God's word on his behalf, goes to Saul and tells him, it is time for the Amalekites to be devoted to destruction. You remember the Amalekites who warred against Israel while they were wandering in the wilderness. You are to kill all of them. You are to devote them entirely to destruction, especially their king, Agag. Agag is the king of the Amalekites. So Saul goes, they war against the Amalekites, they totally win, they they totally secure victory over the Amalekites, but... Saul does not kill the king. Saul lets him live. And he brings him back into Israel. Now, we pick up in verse 22 of 1 Samuel 15. Samuel said, "Has the Lord as great has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Samuel says to Saul, Because you have not destroyed this king, because you have not killed him like we have, like God's word has decreed that you would do so, you are now removed from being king. And Saul's whole point was, no, I'm going to offer sacrifices to God. And I took their livestock so that we can worship the Lord through sacrifices. And Samuel's whole point is, what do you think the Lord wants more? Sacrifices that overcome disobedience or obedience? The answer, of course, is obedience. So Saul does not kill Agag. And so we read, in Esther chapter 3, that Mordecai, the son, the descendant of Kish, is replaced in his place of influence and power by Haman, the descendant of Agag. This war that God told Moses and Joshua about way back in Exodus 17, that from Israel and the Amalekites there will be war from generation to generation, is now front and center in the story. That's the background. Haman, the Agagite, Mordecai, Jew and descendant of Saul's family, the war continues now. So Mordecai would not bow, would not pay homage to Haman. Now this is not an issue of worship. This is not as though the the civil servants are bowing down to worship Haman. This is merely a a sign of respect. Think if you go to to Japan, and and one of the things they do often there is if you find somebody who is older than you or uh, somebody that you respect, you would bow to them, right? It would be like that. And, And Mordecai decides, no, I am not going to give this guy any respect. I know exactly who he is. I know who his family is. I know who my family is. He is not going to get my honor. 
Now, Mordecai is probably doing some overreacting, but we'll get to more of that later. But notice Haman's pride. We read in the story of Esther chapter 3, he doesn't even notice. He doesn't even notice that Mordecai isn't bowing. He's walking around the king's gate. Everybody's bowing down and paying homage, and he's just lapping it up. He doesn't notice the one guy still standing. And day after day, the other servants go to Mordecai and say, why are you not obeying the king's command? And after he keeps disobeying the king's command, finally these servants go to to Haman and say, hey, you know this Mordecai guy, this Jew, he's not bowing. He's not paying homage to you. So when Haman actually notices what's going on, his pride is offended and fury takes over. Look again at verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. He wants Mordecai, and not just Mordecai, but everything he represents to disappear. Now, the absurd overreaction that we became familiar with with the Persian Empire was with Ahasuerus in chapter 1. When Vashti didn't come in, there was this absurd overreaction that was really silly, right? That every man should be master in their home and all the women should submit in all ways, right? And there was no way that that could be, that could be kept up. That overreaction was silly. This overreaction of Haman will lead to genocide. The point is that the empire of the world hates the people of God. And in our day, hatred continues. The God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the devil and the powers and principalities under his rule, they all seek to steal, kill, and destroy. The devil is prowling around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he will not rest until the image of God is as erased from the face of the earth as he can possibly manage. He can't steal a soul, but he can wield the power of death. And even in our culture, a culture that touts itself as being a place of religious liberty and of religious freedom, that hatred still exists. It's more subdued. It's less violent. But there are many places and institutions in your life and mine that are full of people who think it would be better for them if those Christians or those religious people would just go, leave. In other words, if they would just cease to exist, my life would be better. If I didn't have to fool around with all this religious fanaticism and your belief in this God or your belief in this Bible, if we could just do what we want to do, it would be so much better. You are a burden to us, they think. It reminds us that this place, like the Persian Empire, is not our home. And the powers that be don't need much to act against us. They don't need a lot of reason to fuel and act on that hatred, which is exactly what we see with King Ahasuerus. So the second scene that we see today is not just that Haman is furiously offended, but number two, Ahasuerus is easily convinced. Ahasuerus is easily convinced. Let's read in verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots or dice, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad 
and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not of the, to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. All right, so what's happening in this story? What's happening in this, in this scene? Haman is filled with fury. He wants Mordecai dead. He wants the whole people of Israel, the whole people of God to be destroyed. And he gathers some people together, probably some diviners or subordinates of some kind to cast lots, to cast dice. They want to know that fate is on their side. So by doing this, they determine the month and the day that Haman would seek to destroy God's people. What Haman failed to understand is what we know as Christians, when we read the Bible, we read of the providence of God, specifically in Proverbs 16.33, where it says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Things that seem random to us, things that seem to be a result of chance to us, are not random to the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. The enemies of the people of God often seem superstitious or spiritual. I mean, even in our own day, there are plenty of people who would say to be on the right side of history on a, on a, a multitude of cultural issues is not to be divorced from being spiritual. I mean, I can believe in a higher power and I can believe in some kind of superstitious religious truth. Oftentimes that's just called love. It's not to say that they're not spiritual or they're not superstitious, but they are idolaters. The object of their worship is not real, is not right, is not true. And there's a reversal here that the right time was given for this pronouncement almost a year in the future. So they cast lots in the first month and they find out that the day that the Jews are going to be put to death is in the 12th month of the year. So almost a full year away, plenty of time for God to orchestrate the deliverance of his people. So Haman goes to Ahasuerus for the pitch. He goes to the king and says, hey, look, King Ahasuerus, I know that you're busy and I know you got a lot going on, but I don't know if you know, there's a people. There's a people among your kingdom and they are a different kind of people. He wants to make a vision, his vision of revenge and destruction a reality, but he needs the king's approval. So Haman and the world empire writ large shows us that the world is deceitful. Students, the world will try to lure you with half-truths and flat-out lies that oftentimes we believe because it appeals to something within us that doesn't want to believe the truth. <laughs> right? Romans 1 tells us that we exchange the truth for a lie. We worship created things rather than the Creator. And the world empire, the powers of this world, they know this. They know this. So Haman begins to convince the king with a sketchy version of the truth. He says first, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples. In other words, King Ahasuerus, 
there is a lurking threat all around your kingdom, and it's hard to see. Their laws are different, Haman says. Well, that's true. They do follow the laws of Moses, but it doesn't mean that they disobey the Persian laws either. And it says, but they do not keep the king's laws. So Haman, ever the faithful subject, now lies to the king and says, these people don't follow your laws at all. It's not to your profit, O king, that they continue to exist in your kingdom. So, so let's get rid of them. But hey, I know you're busy, he says. If it, if it pleases the king, let me devote them to destruction. Why don't you present a decree and I will destroy them? He wants to take care of this people for the king. He doesn't want him to really ask questions. He just wants him to give him the authority. And what incentive could he add? What, what thing could Haman give the king that would really sweeten the deal? The answer in the Persian empire and all the time around the world is money. Haman says, I will put 10,000 talents of silver as a pledge into the king's treasuries. Now, it's difficult for us to really fathom what that means, 10,000 talents. So let's just translate it. Uh, you and I, when we buy things, we pay taxes, right? So sales tax, when some of us have, older folks have jobs, they take taxes out of our paychecks and it hurts a lot, right? So they, they pay taxes on different things. And that tax revenue, the, the, the monies from taxes that a kingdom receives or a country receives is how they pay to keep the thing going. 10,000 talents is over half of the annual tax revenue that the Persian Empire would receive. That one deposit is over half of the money this kingdom would make. It's a pretty sweet deal if you're a Hashuerus. Haman says it's a problem that I didn't even know existed. He's going to take care of it and I don't have to worry about it. And he's going to give me almost over 50% more money this year than I usually take in. Well, that's easy. Are these not the tools, however, that often lead people astray in our world? Half-truths, appeals to our own importance or our own power, or our own influence, money or the things that money can buy us. So without a clarifying question or even an interest in who these people really are, the king obliges. The king says, sure. Takes off his ring, signet ring, the seal of authority in the royal empire, and he gives Haman the ring. So when Haman writes this decree and seals it with the king's ring, it is a message from the king himself. Haman is now clearly revealed not just as the Agagite, not just as the son of Hamadatha, but as the enemy of the Jews. In a book like Esther that keeps characters and their motivations often shrouded in mystery and gray areas, I mean, we've already met many characters that we don't exactly know if their intentions were good or not. It's telling and striking that the narrator would be so clear about Haman. He wants you to know, or she wants you to know, this man is the villain. And Ahasuerus' response to Haman to keep the money, or in, in my translation, the ESV, it says, the money is yours. Maybe in your translation, it says, keep the money. It's probably just a Persian version of niceness. Uh, we read later in Esther chapter 7 that the money seems to have been paid because Esther says that her people have been sold to be destroyed. So it really is just like, oh, no, 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 you don't have to do that. Yes, I'll take the money. But then the king gives Haman what he's looking for. 
He says about the people, do with them in verse 11, as it seems good to you. In other words, pagan enemy of God's people, enemy of the Jews, do what seems right in your own eyes. This enemy, Haman, now seemingly has all the power and all the authority he needs to wipe out the people of God. So in the third scene of this story that we read about today, we see that the people of God are doomed. The people of God are doomed. But God is not absent. And all is not as it seems. Look at verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, every people in its own language, just like Esther chapter 1. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So here we witness, in these verses, the main conflict of the book of Esther. The decree has been sent. In 11 months, on this day, the 13th day of the 12th month, all of the people of Israel, young and old, women, children, everyone who would call themselves a Jew is to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated away forever. We are going to erase the people of God. It's as good as done. Persia is famous for their horseback couriers and they traveled far and wide to deliver the death sentence. This annihilation has no mercy in sight. Remember, in those days, you virtually could not escape the empire. It's not as though the Jews are thinking, okay, how are we going to get out of the Persian empire? The Persian empire is all that there is. It's the known world. It includes Jerusalem. The Persian empire is in control of the promised land. And not only were they to be killed, but their goods were to be plundered. Everything they had of value, everything that they had that could be considered historically important would be given over to the Persian Empire to do with whatever they wanted. The people of God would be erased from the face of the earth. And Haman now has the firepower to do it. This decree was issued in the citadel. And in response, we see two pictures here at the end of this chapter. The first is of Ahasuerus and Haman sitting down for a drink. They enjoy another feast this time to celebrate their wickedness. It's just another day. It's just another opportunity to celebrate their power and their separation from the actual world because in the city, there's another picture. The city of Susa, the scripture says, is thrown into confusion. Why must the Jews be eradicated? Why, why are God's people being destroyed? Why are the ones who follow Yahweh supposed to be destroyed in 11 months. They had been easily tolerated up until now. What changed? 
Ian Duguid tells us, Mordecai soon discovered that although the empire may seem superficially benign and tolerant, it can turn nasty in short order. So if we stand out from the crowd and stand up against the empire, we had better be ready for consequences when the empire strikes back, just like Vashti discovered earlier. He continues, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion, showing that not everyone in the empire was against the Jews. But what could be done? Now that an edict for their destruction had been sent out, a law of the Medes and Persians, which could not be changed, just one of those things. In the same way during World War II, many people in occupied Europe felt helpless to do anything to avert the fate of Jewish friends and neighbors. It was simply the way the empire operated. The lot had been cast. The edict issued. It seemed that nothing can now prevent the impending tragedy. So as we conclude, as we set up this high point of conflict in the story of Esther, we need to consider what kind of application this text has for us as Christians. And there's some difficulty here, right? Because there's no clear command. There's no clear depiction of God. There's no clear depiction, of course, of Jesus. It's difficult to see what it looks like to be faithful to God in the midst of a situation like this. But first and foremost, we don't need to forget. We cannot forget. We must not forget as the people of God today that we have a real enemy who seeks to defame our king and take our lives. A lot of times, you and I live like functional atheists. And, and what that means is, is that we, we believe and say with our mouths that, that God is real, that, that supernatural forces are real, things like the devil and demons, angels. But when we live out our lives day to day, that, that belief really has no function or value. We look for natural answers to all of our problems. We look for natural reasons to all of our situations. We look for natural solutions to everything that we're going through. The devil is real, and he is not to be trifled with. Believing in the providence of God, having a deep conviction that God really is in control and sustains all things and is orchestrating all things for his glory and for the good of those who love him does not make us invincible to real danger. Like believing that those things are true does not inoculate us from the real enemy that is trying to kill us. Following Jesus may cost you dearly. So don't forget that we have a real enemy. That our enemy is not flesh and blood. Something more sinister. Second, when we look at Mordecai, we remember and we learn that we should commit to major on the majors. Here's what I mean. Mordecai chose a particularly small hill to stake his life on, right? Will you bow and pay respect to the person who is second in command only to the king of this entire Persian empire? No, I won't do it. But what is, what is Mordecai's livelihood? He's a civil servant in the Persian empire. He's already in many ways assimilated into this culture, assimilated into the ways that they handle honor and dishonor, shame and guilt. He is already a person of Persia. And he chose a really small hill to stake his life and by extension the lives of God's people. 
in Jesus' language, Mordecai in this text may have strained out a gnat, but he swallowed a camel. We may feel good in our own day that we don't watch those kinds of movies or we don't wear those kinds of inappropriate clothing or we don't listen to that kind of music or we don't show ourselves in those kinds of ways on social media, yet we are very quick to gossip about others or swell with pride in our own achievements or never depend on God through prayer. We major on the minors too. We should strive for holiness as Christians in the small things as well as the big things. Third, it's easy for us. When we look at this text, when we look at this story, it's easy for us to criticize Ahasuerus' laziness. Right? He's the king of the empire, and he doesn't even want to know who these people are. He doesn't really even want to know what people group Haman has decided to destroy. He doesn't want to know what happened or what caused Haman to come up to him and ask. It's easy for us to, to lob these criticisms and judgments at King Ahasuerus, but we often give in to a lack of serious thought when it comes to our own lives. God has given each of you a mind. He's given you a mind that you can reason and, and be rational and think through things and, and deliberate and ask questions and seek counsel and develop wisdom and we would do well to use it, sharpen it, let our minds meditate on those things that honor God rather than ourselves. So before we lob those criticisms at Ahasuerus, take a look at our own life. Take a look at your own life and say, what things in my life have I not really given much thought to and have just followed after as though it were the truth? All of us have blind spots. Finally, we recognize that the terrible predicament that this story shadows is the story of our own lives as well. But it's far greater. Because students, in our lives, there is an authority that we have refused to respect. We have all broken a king's law. And we have an enemy who stands before him who tells him all of the valid reasons why we should be destroyed. An edict for our own destruction because of our sin should be what we expect from this king. We've committed treason against him. We have dishonored his throne. We've spat in his face. We've put shame and dishonor on his name. But instead, the king of kings has offered up a different message. Instead of devoting us to destruction, he offers up his son for destruction so that we might escape his righteous fury. His goods were plundered and distributed among his executioners who cast lots for them. Through one man's disobedience, we were condemned. But through one man's obedience, we are made righteous in Christ Jesus. And now the whole world is given an offer of life instead of death. We are now the couriers who have been given a message sealed with the king's authority, sealed with his own name, sealed in his own blood. 
that we might go to the ends of the earth and proclaim the good news that comes from this king, that for treasoners, or for, for those who are treasonous, those who have committed treason against this king, there is life for you instead of death. Here is a king that we ought to delightfully and lovingly bow before. Here is a king that we can pay homage to. There are many who hate him, and those who follow him. So if you're a follower of this king, you have many who hate you as well. If you live in light of this king, the kingdom of the world will want you dead. But we can take heart. As we'll see in Esther, the truth of Proverbs 21 will shine bright and clear. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The people of God may seem destined for destruction, but there is a deliverer working behind the scenes who will not be stopped. In Esther's day and in our own day as well. Let's pray. God, we confess that life in a world that is full of brokenness, life in a world that is marred by sin, life in a world where there are real powers and principalities that hate you and your people to be faithful to you and your word, it is hard. It's hard. But God, we confess to remind ourselves and to remind one another and to confirm our faith It is worth it because you are the true king and you reign over all things, even those who seek to do harm to those whom you have adopted as your sons and daughters. So Lord, I pray that this story in Esther would remind us of our own lives, that God, you are providentially working behind the scenes that ultimately evil and destruction and sin will not win because you have secured the victory in Christ. And so Lord, instead of a message of death, we have been given a message of life to go and share to this world that we too might throw the world into confusion. But confusion that leads to glory, not death. We ask that you would help us to make firm commitments day in and day out, to take up our cross, to die to ourselves because you have died in our place. Holy Spirit, we ask that you might fill us now with wisdom to be able to discern rightly, to to think clearly as we move into a time of discussion together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your life. Thank you for the gospel. In your name we pray. Amen.